Welcome back to my podcast, Statehouse with Frank Santos. Today we have Dr. Katherine Harris. We'll be discussing needed changes to the Texas Compassionate Use Program and how important that is to Texas patients. Dr. Harris is a Gladsell Fellow in Drug Policy at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy. Her current research focuses on the overdose crisis, the availability of drug treatment programs, and medical use cannabis. Hope you enjoy the show, and please welcome Dr. Katherine Harris. Well, welcome, Dr. Harris, to State House. Thanks for uh, coming to uh, to be on our podcast and talk about uh, a really Im- important issue, uh, which is the Texas Compassionate Use Program. Um, I actually, your article that came out recently in the, I believe it was a Houston Chronicle, mm-hmm. um, was was right on point, and it's some of the things that we've been talking about separately. Um, at the Capitol and and to the governor's office and the DPS and others. And when I saw your article, I was like, you must be mind melding with me because <laughs> that's those are exactly the points that um, we've been trying to get across, you know, to all the people that are making these decisions about the program. Uh, how did you, uh, how did that article come about? Yeah, well, first off, Frank, thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the the article came about, I think there's, an opportunity right now, you know, we're in September, the governor is supposed to call the special session in October, right? And so I think part of the impetus for this was to draw attention to an issue that, you know, hey, this issue did not get addressed as it should have been during the regular session. Here we are with the special session. This is an opportunity to bring this issue back, right? And allow the legislature to address it as they should. And, you know, as far as the points and, you know, how you said that we were kind of thinking the same thing, I think that's because for so many people, the the shortcomings of the program are so obvious, right? I mean, there's really the lack of chronic pain and the lack of providers are just very glaring limitations in the program. And so it seems just, I think for a lot of us, just kind of obvious about what needs to be done. And I think the legislature there was support for it last session to do that. And unfortunately, it just didn't get across the finish line. And so this, you know, I wanted to write this just sort of kind of as a reminder, of, you know, why we need to be paying attention to this issue. And, you know, we we don't have a really fully functioning medical cannabis program in the state right now. I 100 percent agree. And and uh, so I, so right now where we are with the provider issue, I know that the Texas Department of Public Safety is. I think they have um from from the last I heard about 138 applications and they are reviewing them. Um I don't know how robustly they're reviewing them because I think they're still trying to determine how many that there should be in any new ones in the program and that was one of the real uh issues that I have with what's going on the last DPS hearing um there was data that's being fed to them and from the current providers that's saying that they, you know, that the participation rate is dropping and that they don't need, they don't have enough patients to actually keep themselves going. And, you know, I felt like this was a great time 
to get information back to the Texas Department of Public Safety, because I think they've done a really good job of trying to manage this very sort of weird program that hasn't quite have all the pieces together with it. And they're, and I think they're doing as good as they can. But, you know, in that the reason people are not seeking out the current providers is because there's only really, even though there's supposed to be three, there's about one and a half really producing <laughs> Right. when you really come down to it. Right. Yeah. And then the price, because there's so few is so high. They're not going to, why would they go? They're not going to, it's not covered by insurance. So right. why would they go to that program when they can go to the illicit market. And I, I'm really interested to, to, to hear your thoughts on, on that part. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you're exactly right. I mean, I think that they, yeah, the providers, you know, we don't have enough options for patients and it's still kind of clunky, right. For people to get, to get signed up. And then, you know, I think one of the things that came out from the most recent DPS meeting, right. Is that if you look at the stats of how many patients are registered and DPS provides this information online, it's steadily increasing, right? Each each month we add more patients. But what they had said in that meeting is that the provider or the that in the DPS meeting they reported that the providers have said that they're seeing a drop in regular patients, and so that suggests that people aren't utilizing the program. And so, you know, why is that? And I mean, I think certainly the the convenience aspect has to be one part of it, right? And and the, the lack of choices, even though, I mean, if you look online, I think um, at some of the products, I mean, there, you know, there are gummies and tinctures and that sort of thing available, but we do have a very robust illicit market in our state as we do in all 50 states, right? Um, and we have, you know, I think there's just, there's so many product options here. You know, I know I, I mean, I know people, who, you know, they can get it from from California or Colorado or New Mexico or Oklahoma, right, which is a state that a lot of people um, are going to traveling to for, for medical reasons. And so we just don't have the options. And as far as like the, you know, the patient count and patient utilization, I mean, I think it's sort of almost this chicken and egg thing, right, where it's like the existing uh, licensees will say, well, we don't have enough patients to keep it sustainable as it is, right? But it's like, we need to expand access to the program to add patients to then keep the program sustainable also. Well, exactly. And, and, uh, I can, I know I just drove my son back, um, uh, last month back to uh, school. He goes to university of Denver. And, um, as soon as you cross the border into, into New Mexico, you have that little spot where you cross into New Mexico before you hit Colorado, huge dispensary. I mean, yeah. giant dispensary right, literally out in the middle of nowhere. Um, so yeah, people are going across state lines and you're almost pushing people to, you know, they're, they're committing an illegal act, you know, when they do it and, and they're doing it because they, uh, yes, there are some people out there that are doing it because they, they want it for the recreational purposes, but there is a lot of patience. Um, and, you know, we certainly don't push recreational here in Texas. Um, but the, um, those patients, they have to do the same thing. I mean, there's a lot of, um, you know, one of the things we did is we went to the governor's office and we, we spoke with uh, some of his policy folks uh, a number of times. But recently I took um, Chase Bearden, who's with the Coalition of Texas with Disabilities, who's quadriplegic and, and has tr has transitioned from opioids to um, to medical cannabis. And it's been it's just made his life a, a, a wholly different life. I mean, just a very fulfilling life that he can do things he's not 
you know, opioided out all the time for the pain that he has from sitting in the wheelchair. And then I also brought with me a former Navy SEAL who um, is works with the big veteran population um, that 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 really suffers from PTSD. Um, most of them are special forces type of guys, you know, and they all think they never could get it. And all of a sudden, boom, they have it. And so he really assists them in helping them get, you know, treatment options. And I think the thing that really shocked the the governor's office and and they've, they've been working with us. So I'm not it wasn't I'm not saying this because they aren't. They are. They have been working with us. And um, I think they're also trying to weigh out, you know, what information is good information. But the one of the things he said to them, and he, he's not a professional lobbyist. I mean, he's a he was a professional soldier, and now he's a a businessman. But he just said, ninety um, percent of the veteran community that he works with, ninety percent goes to the illicit market or Delta Eight mm-hmm. to get. And they and they just yep. were shocked. They said ninety percent, and he said, "Yeah, there's no reason for them." Yeah. It's too expensive. They can't afford to go and get it on the market. Plus, yeah. it's not available. I think you said that. It's not really available because yeah. you, got, you have to drive it all the way from Austin. Yeah, to I think. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think that the that the licensees. I mean, I think if you live right in Houston or San Antonio or Austin, right, they they're it can be a little bit easier to get it, right, because we're major markets, and so you know if you're. Uh, Texas originally, you're going to drive to Houston for the Houston market, right? But I mean, the state is so big, like we can't, who's going to drive to El Paso from Austin and back in one day? That rule, that's a DPS rule that, you know, you cannot have more than one location at which you store your, the cannabis product, right? And so it means that the providers have to literally, you know, go trek across the state and back in one day, right? And, and I think that, I think that's certainly onerous for, for the providers themselves. And it also, I mean, it just means that, you know, the Western part of the state and, you know, there's certain parts of it that just don't have any access at all. Whereas the guy like Delta eight, I mean, I have, you know, four, (laughs) maybe four vape shops in my like two block radius that have Delta eight products. So um, it's very, very easy to get those, those products. And so I think um, that, yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's difficult to, to compete with that for the, in the in the license program as it is set up right now. It's, uh, let's talk about Delta Eight for just a minute, um, yeah. because it's, our listeners and our viewers probably don't know when we say Delta Eight. Since we sort of work in this area a lot, we it, we just yeah. throw it out there. But I don't know if people really understand what that is and that it, how unregulated and really dangerous it is. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so it is a little confusing. So Delta Eight. So you know, first off, like the marijuana plant is quite complex, right? And there's a whole lot of different, uh, you know, chemicals that that make up the plan and make up its physical and psychological effects. Uh, Delta 9 is the main component that we think of when we think about getting high, right? Delta 9 THC is what, what often makes us high. And that comes from the marijuana strain of the plant. Now, Delta 8 is derived, can be derived from hemp products. And so the state in 2019 legalized hemp. And when they did that, they kind of, yeah, right. They unintentionally also legalized Delta 8 THC because again, Delta 8 THC can be derived from hemp plants. Um, And there's been a whole lot of legal battles over whether or not the Delta 8 products are in fact legal under state law. As of right now, they still are considered legal. Um, And so that's why they're available in stores. 
Delta eight is, is, uh, chemically just slightly different than Delta nine. Um, the high that it produces from what I understand is, you know, slightly milder than the high from traditional cannabis products that have Delta nine THC. Um, and actually that can be, some people might actually prefer that, right? I think there are people who would prefer a milder high and maybe Delta eight products can be useful for them. The problem with the Delta 8 market here in Texas is that it's right, as you said, it's completely unregulated. And so when people go in their shops and they buy these Delta 8 products, they don't know really for sure that that's actually what they're getting. Are they getting Delta 8? They don't know, you know, um, whereas the, the products that come through the, the licensed state program have been quality tested. And so that's a massive difference between the two products. Yeah. And, and and I have heard um, anecdotally, so I can't. I don't. I don't have any stats on it, but I've heard that part of the problem with Delta Eight is they can do they can concentrate it and make the you know the intoxicating um, levels in it as as high as they want if they want to, or they could even adulterate it with 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 Delta Nine and nobody you know nobody would know. It's kind of just sort of this wild west with Delta Eight because they made hemp products completely legal. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, is that correct? Am I saying that right? Well, I think so. I, I don't know. I, I don't I haven't heard anecdotally. I have not heard anecdotally about the Delta nine component of it. I mean, I think they could certainly adulterate them like that if they wanted to, um, because there isn't really any product testing. Uh, I think, though, I mean, I think this is the same thing that we've seen with the CBD products that are on the market. Right. Is that they are also not necessarily what they claim to be. And there have been. Uh, you know, studies of some of these products, right, where they've gone out and they've, you know, looked at the products and the claims of the products about like how much CBD they actually have. And then they've been, they've analyzed the products themselves. And very often the products have more, usually more, but sometimes less CBD than they claim to. And so I would, I'm assuming that it's very similar probably for the Delta 8 market. What's interesting about this is that, you know, we, again, we're not the only state that has Delta 8, right? This whole, um, area has has kind of proliferated in other states as well. And states have taken different approaches to it, right? I think the most straightforward approach that states, that legal states have taken is to just say, okay, well, Delta 8 products have to go through all the same testing as Delta 9 products. So any kind of like marijuana related plant, whether it's, you know, from, from hemp, you know, cannabis, whatever we're talking about, it all needs to go through some sort of whatever the rigorous te testing standards are, right? And I think that that is one way to deal with it um, that can, you know, hopefully avoid having these unregulated products on the market. Because at this point, if we just ban Delta eight products, they're just going to go to the illicit market, right? Cause they're already the, like the cat's already out of the bag on it. So, um, so you mentioned that maybe th that some States are, are just pushing the Delta eight products into the same sort mm -hmm. of program where the, all the other, uh, medicinal medicinal cannabis products have to go through the testing phase and, and all the stuff they have to go through. Has that actually worked in any states? Is that going on in any states? I will. So I don't know. I would have to go and look and see like where they are in that process because this is relatively new. So a lot of this legislation has been passed in the last couple of years. Um, I, I imagine that there's less demand for Delta 8 products in states that have fully functional medical or, or adult use programs. But I, I mean, I do think that that is the I think that that is the best path forward for discouraging um, sort of unregulated products that we don't know what's in them. Right. Because, again, 
they're already out there. So if you just, if you, if, if we just, if the state tomorrow says, okay, well, no more Delta eight products in stores, where do you think all those products are going to go? Right. I mean, there's already a market for them, already a demand for them. And in fact, during the session, there were a whole lot of veterans that opposed and other groups as well that opposed any kind of uh, legislation on Delta eight products because they do rely on them. Um, and it's again, certainly option. We, yeah. It's yeah. Places. Right. Right. And so we can, we can work on addressing that, but we have to fix the medical program first. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, you know, the two, I think, um, and I, again, I'll ask you if I'm correct on this, but from what I understand, you can take the molecule and even if you ban Delta eight, you could change the molecule a little bit to something else and and it would still be legal, kind of a designer drug sort of process. Yeah, there's there's um, Delta six. I want to say there's a Delta three. There's a Delta zero. That's like an acetate that is um, I think that's been like engineered to be more potent than Delta nine. Right. So there's all different kinds of <laughs> of of analogs, essentially. And there again, there I think there are a few states that have started to, to write legislation that redefines cannabis, right? So that it applies to all um, all THC analogs and not just the Delta 9 one. And so that's something that I think we have to think about doing moving forward um, to account for that. But I mean, that's we, we kind of face that with all kinds of drugs, right? I mean, that's anytime you try to ban one specific drug, <laughs> people will just come up with a different drug. Um, and that, that's, that's for everything, every substance. Yeah. I, I mean, I like the idea of just trying to make them comply with the same things yeah. that the people that are producing medical cannabis would do. That would, that would help a lot. At least people would know what they're getting and they're not getting yeah. something with some, uh, some kind of dangerous product in it because we don't, we don't know. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that I, as far as I know, I've not heard anything if it's a, if it's, you know, sort of a quality controlled Delta 8 product. I'm not aware of any ill health effects of that versus a, a Delta 9 product. And again, I think that the I see a value of Delta 8 products insofar as they, to the extent that they do produce a mild or high, um, I think it's valuable to have that option on the market for people, right? Because I mean, so much of the, of the market has gone towards higher potency THC products. And I think that uh, for, I mean, for some people, I think that they, they can be too strong, and I think it's important to have those various options out there. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Statehouse. You can find this podcast anywhere you find your podcast today. If you like our program and you want to see more, please subscribe. Like it. Share it with others. If you've got a comment, leave us a comment. Anything that makes us better, we appreciate. And we really appreciate, if you like it, to give us a five-star review. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.